all you Huda Thunkers. This is Zeb's mom, Dee Carball. Um, Zeb said maybe I should give a recommendation or something like that. And, and my recommendation for everyone, really, it's not a book or a movie or anything like that. It's get your butts outside, really. No matter what's going on, the best thing for me is to go outside and experience nature, whether it be a walk or sitting on a park bench or even just actually just sitting in your car with the windows down if that's going to work for you. But I think being outside is such an important connection that we should all make. So do yourself a favor and follow my recommendation and enjoy nature. Well, howdy, Hootie Thunkers. Uh, thank you, Mom, for that recommendation segment. But now it's time for the main event here. The uh, This episode is 111-111 of the Hootie Thunker podcast, and it is about the uh, acclaimed children's author and, and all-around author, he wrote adult things too, Raoul Dahl. Um, and he's a name you should know. Maybe you don't know him from uh, the extraordinary life that he lived, or perhaps you won't even know him at all. Um, some people just don't know authors' names. The name may not ring a bell, but search deep in your memory. His name is likely one your mother or father read aloud just before reading one of the greatest stories your childhood ears had ever heard. Some of the stories that um, have by Raoul Dahl on the cover include James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, The Witches, Fantastic Mr. Fox, The BFG, the Twits, The Giraffe and the Pelly and Me, George's George's Marvelous Medicine, and not to mention he also wrote adult stories like The Tales of the Unexpected. His books have sold more than 250 million copies worldwide, but the story of Raoul Dahl goes beyond his authored works. His famous stories, um, like all authors, are but the byproduct of his colorful life. He had rather impressive service, rather impressive service record in the military during World War II. He was also about six foot four uh, and a heavyweight boxing champion. And the the man lived through more tragedies than one might ever imagine from a children's author. So join me as we go through the life of Raoul Dahl. First, let's begin with the, his background. Even before he was, you know, we'll talk about his birth, but also before he was born. Raoul Dahl was born September 13th of 1916, right in the middle of World War One. He was born in Wales uh, to immigrant parents from Norway. Most of his life was spent in England, though. Raoul Dahl's dad was a successful shipbroker from Sapsborg, Norway. He came to the United Kingdom and settled down in Cardiff in the 1880s. So that's 1880s with his wife, Marie Borin Gresser, a uh, French woman. Harold and Marie had two kids, Ellen and Lois. But um, then Marie died in 1907 before Raoul was ever born. Raoul's father, Harold, remarried to another Norwegian immigrant in 1911. Um, her name was Sophie Magdalene Dahl. They gave birth to Raoul in 1916 and named him after the famous Norwegian Raoul Amundsen. He was a Norwegian explorer in the Arctic, which is pretty cool. At a very young age, Raoul became very acquainted with death. From RaoulDahl.com, it says this. In February of 1920, Raoul Dahl's older sister, Astri, dies from an infection during a burst appendix, aged seven. It was a sudden rupture of the appendix. Raoul was present when it happened. He watched his sister die. 
and he was like three or four at the time. So that's that's no light thing. Weeks later, Raoul's father Harold dies of pneumonia at the age of fifty-seven. Raoul describes describes his death in Boy, um, which is his autobiography, saying Astri's sudden death or. He describes his sister's death. Astri's sudden death left him literally speechless for days afterward. He was so overwhelmed with grief that when he himself went down with pneumonia a month or so afterward, he did not much care whether he lived or died. So that's how his dad died.、Um, he just gave up after the death of his daughter. This tragic series of events leaves Raoul's mother Sophie Magdalene with five children in her care. Raoul and his two sisters. Uh, Alfhild, Alfhild, and Elsa, plus Harold's children by his first marriage, Ellen and Lois. So Magdalene is raising not only her three kids, but two of her、uh, now de- deceased husband's prior children that aren't even her blood. At the time of her husband's death, she was also pregnant with Raoul's sister, Asta,、um, born in autumn of 1920. So, at the age of thirty-five, Sophie is left with the face of the prospect of bringing up six children on her own and at some considerable distance from Norway, the country of her own birth and where she knows everybody. When his father Harold died, he left a fortune to his family. So, although raising six children alone is no small feat, Sophie did inherit, at least financially, was taken care of. She inherited one hundred and fifty-eight thousand pounds、um, in nineteen twenty. That amounts to about six million, six and a half million. Or six and a half million pounds, or eight point two million U.S. dollars today. So that's a lot of money. They were taken care of financially. So what did she do? She sent her kids to boarding school. I mean, it was her and six kids. So I, I can't blame her.、Uh, with all that, with, and they were really good boarding schools. With all that, Kashish,、uh, Sophie thought it was best to give her children the best possible education. Raoul was sent to the cathedral school Land, Landaff in Wales. There he got into all sorts of trouble. When he was eight years old, he and some buddies got caned by the headmaster for putting a dead mouse in a jar of gobstoppers candy at the local candy store. Apparently, the store was owned by this mean and loathsome old lady named Mrs. Pratchett, which is <laughs> makes me think of、uh, Nurse Hat Nurse. What was her name? Nurse Hatchet from、uh, Over the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But Pratchett, that does sound like a, a mean old lady's name, Mrs. Pratchett. Anyway, they put, they put a dead mouse in a candy jar, and she went to grab it and was like astonished. This event, at least among his compatriots, would be known as the Great Mouse Plot of 1924. So, so he was a bit of a dick, a bit of a little shithead. So, Gobstoppers were a favorite candy of UK kids between World War One and World War Two. Raoul loved. Them so much, he made them a pivotal part of his story. You probably heard of it, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and called them everlasting gobstoppers. Raoul was then sent to St. Peter's Boarding School in the English town of Weston,、uh, Supermare. Although he considered it his first great adventure, he wasn't that big of a fan. He was homesick all the time. The place just made him homesick to the point where he wrote to his mother every single week. Raoul wrote to his mom, but never told her how unhappy he was. It wasn't until after her death that Raoul realized that she had kept every single letter that he had ever written her. The BBC Radio Four broadcasted an abridged version of them in 2016. So that's how much UK loves this guy. They they read read aloud the letters he wrote his mom. Then, when he was 13 years old, Raoul sent to was sent to Repton School in Derbyshire. This is where he got to understand the potential cruelty of his fellow humans. So 
If he thought he, you know, being homesick at St. Peter's boarding school was bad, Repton was really bad. At Repton, the older boys preyed on the younger, and they treated them as like, like pledges in a fraternity. Treated them as like the personal servants and lesser than themselves. The hazing went past servitude as the weak were frequently beaten at Repton, not just by the older boys but also the headmasters. This behavior seemed to have been learned from the adults at Repton. Raoul watched as a friend of his was violently violently beaten by the headmaster to the point of injury and in his autobiography boy tales of childhood Raoul wrote all the, all through my school life i was appalled by the fact that masters and senior boys were allowed literally to wound other boys and sometimes quite severely i couldn't get over it i never have got over it Raoul said the violence was the violence he witnessed caused him to quote have doubts about religion and even about god so that's um, not the last time we'll talk about that. His he, he had a very troubled life, and he questioned religion and his faith, um, at least organized religion, uh, a couple times in his life. Raoul also wrote, four years in a long is a long time to be in prison." That's what he called Repton. It becomes twice as long when it takes it out of when it is taken out of your life, just when you're at your most bubbly best and the fields are all covered with daffodils and primroses. It seemed as if we were groping through an almost limitless black tunnel at the end of which there glimmered a small bright light. And if we ever reached it, we would be 18 years old. So that's, that's a very, very horrible thing to hear from a young child about how they saw their younger years and how he felt like his childhood is ripped away from him in reality in some ways. Um, even though it was a very expensive school, it does not mean he was treated well. Sure, he probably didn't starve. Sure, his bedding wasn't horrible or anything, but he was tormented. And I, it sounds to me, he's saying he was in prison and during that time it was during his bubbly best, but it was taken away from him. Instead, he was in a dark tunnel. It sounds like to me, at least in his own eyes, he was, his childhood was taken away from him in some way, his adolescence. While in school, Raoul's teachers didn't believe him to be a particularly talented writer. One of his teachers said, I have never met anybody who is so persistently, or so who so persistently writes words meaning the exact opposite of what is intended. So that's my thought. He was in, he viewed Repton and a lot of his schools as sort of like this living hell. But instead of just you know, going through the motions instead of just, you know, not having out any outlet. Instead, his imagination flooded. And that's why he became such a good writer. The way he remembered it later on in life was sort of seen through this lens of his imagination. He seemed to be more of a jock in school instead of a writer. He would grow up to be um, 1.98 meters. <laughs> that's six foot four for us Americans as an adult. So he had a competitive edge in sports. He was tall. He was built. You know, he played cricket, football, which for them was soccer. I have to translate all this UK stuff to American. <laughs> Anyway, he played cricket, soccer, golf, and was captain of the squash team. So, um, yeah, that's a lot. Just just doing like two sports. He did a whole bunch. But he always had a passion for literature and photography, even though he wasn't praised for those. Um, he was only praised for his sportsmanship in school. He liked the he liked literature and photography. He always had a camera on him. Another inspiration for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was that the Cadbury Chocolate Factory would send boxes of new chocolate test kits to his school. I find it rather cute that a chocolate factory um, sent test chocolates to school students. Raoul would love chocolate and would daydream about inventing a new chocolate bar that would impress Mr. Cadbury. In addition to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, chocolate was a recurring theme in Raoul Dahl's story. So chocolate's a big deal. 
I think it's funny. They, if I owned a chocolate factory, that's what I would do. I would be like, ah, oh, do these taste good? I don't know. Yeah, sure, adults eat chocolate, but who really is going to get the adults to buy it all? Their kids. So let's see if the kids like these. Give it over for free. See if they like it. Whatever. Maybe they filled out surveys. Maybe they just gave it to them. I don't know. The example that comes to mind, and this is Brucey from Matilda, and how he was forced to eat an entire chocolate cake. How these chocolate just keeps as a recurring thing in his life because of this early experience with uh, the Mr. Cadbury, the Cadbury Chocolate Factory. So. If you haven't seen Matilda, watch it. That's probably my favorite. I mean, I love Ronald Dahl's stuff, but Matilda is my favorite. Now, for his summer vacations throughout his school or his childhood and teen years, Ronald would visit his mom's family in Norway. Ever the prankster, he once replaced his half sister's fiance's pipe tobacco for goat poop. So, and he wrote about it with pride in his autobiography. <laughs> so, yeah, he was a prankster. Now that was his childhood. What happened after his childhood? Well,、uh, World War II happened. So here's his service record. Raoul served in the Royal Air Force, commonly known as the RAF, during World War II. He was a fighter pilot. One of the most dangerous ways to serve.、Um, here's a little tidbit about what it means to be a fighter pilot in World War II. Bomber command air crews suffered a high casualty rate of a total of 125,000 airmen.、Uh, 57,205 were killed. That's a 46% death rate. And a further eight thousand four hundred were wounded in action, and nine thousand eight hundred became prisoners of war. Therefore, a total of seventy-five thousand four hundred airmen—that's sixty percent of operational airmen—were killed, wounded, or taken prisoner. A sixty percent—that's a lot. So, that's not. It was a dangerous place to serve. He joined up in November of nineteen thirty-nine. He and sixteen other men went into、uh, flight training, and only three survived the war. Out of all the sixteen he went to training with and bonded with during training, only three of them survived. By August of nineteen forty, he was deemed ready to join a squadron and face the enemy in aerial combat. He was assigned to the number eighty squadron, flying Gloucester Gladiators. That's the last biplane fighter aircraft used by the RAF. In September of 1940, with little training, Raoul was ordered to fly with gladiators by an area of Egypt. So he was supposed to fly out into Egypt. During the final leg of the flight, he couldn't find the airstrip that he was told to land on, so he was、um, was low on fuel, and night was coming fast. So he just decided, I I gotta land it somehow.、Um, instead of just crashing, he landed in the middle of the desert, and the bottom of the undercarriage of the plane hit the sizable boulder, and the plane crashed. So couldn't find the airstrip. Crashed in the middle of the desert, fiery crash. There's tons of fuels in these things. Even though this one was low on fuel, the fumes would went up in blazes. Raoul's skull was fractured and his nose was all smashed up, and his injuries had left him temporarily blinded. Temporarily blinded, but he still managed to drag himself away from the fiery crash before he passed out. Which just try to imagine that your a plane crashes, sunset over the Egyptian desert. The Sahara, I guess, and be, you know, beautiful scenery. But you have this fiery crash; it's deadly. The guy's climbing out. He's probably got like ash, you know, smoking a little bit from being on fire and covered in blood. Can't see anything. Crazy. He passes out, <laughs> understandably so. After the crash, Raoul's unconscious body was taken to a medical post, where he woke up but was still blind. He was taken to the Royal Navy Hospital in Alexandria. I'd love to go there, Alexandria. That's where he fell in and out of love with a nurse、uh, named Mary Welland. Which that's the all we hear about Mary Welland. I just think it's interesting. He fell in love with her. She took care of him. Fell out of love. I, that's World War Two, I guess. A lot of passion, a lot of hatred going on there,、um, in all sorts of places in the world. And it's always nice when you hear about a soldier falling in and out of love with a nurse. I don't know. It's very romantic. Maybe tons of stories about it.
An investigation was undertaken about Raul's crash. Turns out he was given the wrong coordinates. <laughs> Instead of the airstrip he was supposed to land on, Raul was sent to an empty patch of the desert. That's why he couldn't find it. It's not his fault. <laughs> and and it, not to mention, this empty patch of desert was right on the edge of Axis forces, <laughs> right up against his enemies. He was lucky to have survived the ordeal at all. In 1941, Dahl was back in the cockpit fighting alongside the highest-scoring British flying ace of World War II, Pat Paddle, and Raul's buddy, David Koch. Twelve hurricane fighters flew into the battle and five were shot down, including the talented Paddle. So, most decorated flying ace of all time in the RAF, dead. Raul survived, though, luckily. Greek observers on the ground counted 22 German aircraft down, but because of the confusion of the aerial engagement, none of the pilots knew which aircraft they had shot down. Um, Dahl described it as an endless blur of enemy fighter whizzing towards me from every side. That's when Raul started to get headaches and started blacking out. The RAF wasn't a fan of one of their pilots passing out mid-flight, so they sent Raul home so he wouldn't crash their planes. Now, uh, he tried his hand at training pilots for a while, but that didn't really stick. He then met an under-secretary of state, Air Major Harold Balfour. Uh, the major took a liking to Raoul, and he liked the way he talked and liked how intelligent he was. So he gave him the title of Assistant Air Attaché at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. This is when Raoul goes to the U.S., and it's a bit of a shock for him. He had come from the U.K. during World War II, where the Nazis had been starving out the nation uh, for years. And um, they were living off bare, the bare minimum over there. But uh, the Brits had lived off nothing but rations for some time. So when he came to the U.S., he just saw tons and tons of food, wealth. Um, he liked it at first. The attache job was more like a vacation. But after a week or so, he started to feel guilty. Take, you know, taking on such a cushiony job during the world's greatest war, he, he didn't like it. He said, I just be, I just come from the war. People were getting killed. I had been flying around seeing horrible things. Now, almost instantly, I found myself in the middle of a pre-war cocktail party in America. So that's how he explained it, and he, he felt guilty for it. Now, while stationed in D.C., Raoul was tasked with persuading the U.S. politicians and generals and, and the general public into joining the Allies in the fight. At this time, the U.S. had not joined yet. While most of America was dead set on staying isolated from Europe's war, as they called it, Raoul was trying to convince them otherwise. You need to help out. This is a world war. Then uh, that's when Pearl Harbor happened and um, did, his, did his job for him. <laughs> that, that was enough convincing. During this time in America, Raoul's met Raoul met British novelist C.F. Forrester. He's an important guy here. Forrester was tasked with typing up Allied propaganda and help the war effort. American magazine, the Saturday Evening Post, asked Forrester to write about Raoul's time in the RAF. Forrester reached out to Raoul uh, for simple notes about his service, something that he could base his story on, you know, just anecdotes. To Forrester's surprise... Raoul's simple notes turned out to be a compelling story, and Forrester decided to send it to the public, send it to be published with no edits. So that's when his his writing skills starts to come through. Um, the Saturday Evening Post published the story with only one alteration: instead of titling it "A Piece of Cake," as Raoul wanted to call it, getting crashing your airplane in the middle of the desert and being blind, piece of cake. That's what he wanted to call it. No, they called it "Shot Down Over Libya." Even though his plane was never shot down, it just crashed. <laughs> it was published in August of 1942, and that was his first published work. It's worth mentioning that Raoul worked um, with Ian Fleming, the author of James Bond series. So he met a lot of bigwigs, 
during his service. Before the war was over, Ronald was um, also would do some spy work. So this guy was a spy. The guy that wrote Charlie the Chocolate Cho- Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was a freaking spy. Uh, he worked with a Canadian spy master. What a cool title, spy master William Stevenson. His code name was Intrepid. Also cool. Your, your official title, spy master. Your code name, Intrepid. That's that's pretty cool. I like that. Under Intrepid's guidance, Raoult gave valuable intelligence to Winston Churchill himself. He said, quote, my job was to try to help Winston to get on with FDR and tell Winston what was in the old boy's mind. So he basically was trying to, you know, the prime minister of UK, trying to get him to know what's going on with the president of America, try to get him in the war, see what's going on. And that happened. Allies spied on themselves. You'd be surprised. World War II was crazy. At some point, the English shot, fired upon French people. I've talked about it before in the podcast. So um, World War II was crazy. Allies spying on allies and enemies. That's how it goes. Raoult also helped MI6 until his espionage skills were no longer needed, and he was promoted to rank of wing commander, but kicked out of the spy program. So he was a spy for a little bit, then he wasn't needed, and they just sort of said goodbye. You don't get commendations for being a spy, because officially you're not supposed to have done any of it. So, But he was. He was a legit spy. His performance was noticed um, by military higher-ups and became an intelligence officer and eventually an acting wing commander. So I think that's cool. That's the summation of it. When the smoke of war of the war cleared, Raoult's record of five aerial victories qualified him as a flying ace um, and has been confirmed by post-war research and cross-referenced in Axis records. It is most likely that he scored more than those victories during 20, 20th of April 1941 when 22 German aircraft were shot down, but they weren't sure who all he shot down. But he's at least an ace, uh, probably more so. Then, life after the war. After the war, Raoul did what everyone else on Earth did. He got busy living and busy making babies. Uh, that's where the baby boomers come from. He married an American actress by the name of Patricia Neal on July of 1953 at Trinity Church in New York City. Their marriage lasted for 30 years, and they had five children. Um, Olivia, 20. And then you had Chantel Sophia, Sophia, or Tessa, uh, who became an author and mother of, of author and cookbook writer and former model. So Sophie Dahl's pretty cool. Uh, the Theo Matthew, born 1960. And then you have Ophelia Magdalena and Lucy Neal. So he had tons of kids. Uh, then came the tragedies again. Um, this is when his life starts to go down again. In December of 1960, infant Theo Dahl was horribly injured. His baby carriage was hit by a taxi in, in New York City. He suffered from a condition called hydrocephalus. Uh, it's basically excess fluid in the skull. It's not very comfortable. In response to this, Raoul got to work trying to prevent similar incidents in the future. He, um, or not prevent, but to help similar incidents in the future. And he helped develop the Wade Doll Till or the WDT. It was a medical device, a shunt that helped alleviate the pressure caused by the condition. It helped the lives of about 3,000 children around the world. So author, fighter pilot, spy, also helping kids with their with their excess fluid in their skull. I, it, he, he saw a problem, he tried to fix it. Then in November of 1962, not even two years later, Raoul's seven-year-old daughter, Olivia, died from the measles. The death left the author in a state of turmoil and darkness. An excerpt um, from a letter Dahl later wrote reads, Olivia, my eldest daughter, caught measles when she was seven years old. 
As the illness took its usual course, I could remember reading to her often in bed and not feeling particularly alarmed about it.、Um, then one morning, when she was well on the road to recovery, I was sitting on her bed, showing her how to fashion how to fashion little animals out of colored pipe cleaners. And when it came to her came to her turn to make one herself, I noticed that her fingers and her mind were not working together, and she couldn't do anything.、Uh, I said, "Are you feeling all right?" I asked her. I feel sleepy," she said. In an hour, she was unconscious, and in twelve hours, she was dead. Raoul became an advocate of vaccines and dedicated his 1982 book, The BFG, to Olivia. Olivia's death shook Raoul's faith, at least in organized religion. When he asked a church official about his daughter and her dog, he was told that his daughter was in paradise, but her dog would never be with her there. So、um, he said, "I wanted to ask him." How he could be so absolutely sure that other creatures did not get the same special treatment as us? I sat there wondering if this great and famous churchman really knew what he was talking about, and whether he knew anything at all about God or heaven. And if he didn't, then who in the world did? Understandably, the death of his daughter shook his understanding of reality. It was an existential thing for him. But it didn't stop him. He he kept working, kept writing. Then in 1965, Patricia, his wife, had three bursts of cerebral aneurysms、uh, while she was pregnant with Lucy, their fifth child. Raoul didn't shirk his duties as a husband. For for months, he helped Patricia rehabilitate, relearning to walk and talk. This didn't keep Patricia down. She returned to her acting career. They even made a movie about it,、um, for a movie, a TV movie about it, called The Patricia Neal Story of 1981. Then in 1972, Raoul met Felicity Debro Crossland、uh, while she was working at a set design as a set designer on a commercial for Maxim Coffee with Raoul's then wife, the actress. It wasn't long until they began an affair together, and in 1983, Raoul got a divorce from Patricia and promptly remarried or, or married Felicity. In addition to the awards he received during his military service, Raoul was given all sorts of awards from UK's royal family. His country recognized his contributions to literature and humanity as a whole. So, people love this guy. How was he as a writer? We talked about his childhood. We talked about his service. We talked about his life after the war as an adult. But how about his writings? What what's going on there? It was in the 1940s where his writing started to take off after the war. His first, or during the war, his first published work、um, was those requested anecdotes from C.S. Foster about his time in the RAF when his plane crashed. Dahl ironically named it a piece of cake, and it's the story of time in the war where he brought the Saturday Evening Post.、Uh, he got paid a thousand dollars, and which was a lot back then, and it published as a shot、uh, shot down over Libya. That's his first work. His first children's book. He wrote was published in 1943, still during World War II. He called it the Gremlins. It's about folklore、um, surrounding airmen and the RAF pilots. <laughs> See, they used to blame like faulty malfunctions in their air aircraft on gremlins. <laughs> I thought that was interesting.、Um, uh, during his time in the U.S., Raoul sent a copy to the First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, who enjoyed reading it to her grandchildren. Apparently, Walt Disney bought the rights to make the movie. Uh, make a movie out of it, but that never happened.、Um, the Gremlins, but it it was never made. It, I think that would be a fun movie to watch. I <laughs> I don't know how they would do it, but I feel like it would be good. While he is most known for his phenomenal children's stories, he also wrote books for adults.、Um, they were full of dark humor and plot twists. Raoul's last book, 
the Ezio Trot, Trot or Trot, was released in January of 1990. It was very different from most of his other books. See, all his life he wrote about how cruel adults uh, could be and how tyrannical they could be. Um, and how children were magical and often the protagonist. But Ezio Trot was about a lonely old man who had a crush on a woman that he loved, but only from afar. In 2015, the story was made into a BBC comedy TV movie featuring Dustin Hoffman and Judy Dench. So I might have to check that one out. So that was his writing career. That, that's Raoul Dahl. Of course, um, there's some criticisms. Today, Raoul Dahl's legacy is met with an asterisk. 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 Um, it's, it's not just saying he's great, nothing wrong with him, which he's human, doesn't surprise me. There are quotes from his early life that led people of today to think he was anti-Semitic, racist, and misogynistic. I've read some of the quotes, and yeah, they're not great. But instead of remarking on them, um, on these quotes myself, I will read his family's words. In 2020, uh, Dahl's family published a statement on the official Raoul Dahl website apologizing for his anti-Semitism. It applies to all his quotes, I'd say. The statement says, The Dahl family and the Raoul Dahl story company deeply apologize for the lasting and understandable hurt caused by some of Raoul Dahl's statements. Those prejudiced remarks are incomprehensible to us and stand in marked contrast to the man we knew and to the values at the heart of Raoul Dahl's stories, which have positively impacted young people for generations. We hope that just as he did at his best, at his absolute worst, Raoul Dahl can help remind us of the lasting impact of words. I like how they said that, you know. He wasn't perfect. He had some demons in his closet, but it meant something. Raoul Dahl died exactly three years before I was born on November 23rd of 1990. Um, he was laid to rest in the Church of St. Peter and St. Paul Cemetery in Great Messenden, uh, Buckinghamshire, England. He was buried with some very good burgundy, chocolates, HB pencils, a power saw, and his snooker cues. <laughs> to this day, children still have toys uh, still leave toys and flowers by his grave. During his life, he held a lasting commitment to donating to the fields of neurology, hematology, and literacy. After his death, those charitable donations were continued by his widow and the Raoul Dahl's Marvelous Children's Charity. The charity provides care and support to seriously ill children and young people throughout the UK. And here's a good quote from him. A person is a fool to become a writer. His only compensation is absolute freedom. He has no master except his own soul, and that, I am sure, is why he does. So thank you for listening. That was the story of Raoul Dahl. Tune in next week, Kuda Thunkers. I'll catch you next time. See you later. And I'm going to add this in after I recorded the episode. I posted that I was going to talk about Raoul Dahl for this episode. My friend on the Facebook, on the Who to Thunk at Facebook page, told me about another famous quote of Raoul Dahl's, um, and I Googled it. It says here, in a hospital surrounded by family, Dahl reassured everyone sweetly that he wasn't afraid of death. Quote, it's just that I will miss you all so much, he said, the perfect final words. Then, as everyone sat quietly around him, a nurse pricked him with a needle, and he said his actual last words, ow, fuck, and then he passed away. So that's Raul Dahl's final words. Ow. Fuck. <laughs> Thanks, Brian, for letting me know about that quote. That's hilarious. I wanted to add that in. Sorry for anyone who's offended by foul language. <laughs> but 
there you go. Raul Dahl's final words. That's kind of funny for a writer's last words. But thanks for listening. Tune in next week. Thank <laughs> you.